0: Today is Yom Kippur, day of atonement. But I remind you, Jesus didn't just atone for our sins, he washed them white as snow. Atonement is covering. There was a blood covering over Israel, a covering that that allowed the Lord to pass over the sins previously committed until Jesus died. But when Jesus died, those sins were not passed over, they were washed away, wiped clean which means that you and I here tonight stand cleansed before God because of the blood of Jesus. If in fact Jesus is your Lord and Savior, praise the Lord. And so, Father, we thank you so much. On this Yom Kippur, and we recognize, Lord, what you continue to do in your ongoing plan with Israel and your call to your people, I pray for the day when, as a nation, atonement falls away and absolute propitiation and cleansing and expiation of all sin will be received and understood by your people. Father, we thank you for the blessing of the blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Joshua chapter eight, let's jump in. We were praying, uh, a few of us beforehand this evening, and uh, one of the things that came up without getting all into it, is that it is the truth that breaks a lie. And the reason why we keep coming back and continuing to be in the word together is the truth breaks the lies. The word of truth breaks the lies. And we all have them in our lives. We have lies that we bought into at some point along the line. Lies that keep us in a stuck place Lies that don't allow us to move forward or lies that we just assume, well, that's just the way it is and we accept it because that's what we were taught or that's what we heard or again, that's what we assumed. The truth breaks the lies and allows us to be free. We're free indeed in Jesus and by his blood, but the lies that we have accepted in our lives and in our past can hold us down. What if Joshua and the children of Israel gave up? I mean, after the defeat at I that we talked about in our previous study, what if they packed it up and just headed back to the Jordan River? I was thinking about this a moment ago and thinking how funny God heaped up the Jordan River, piled it up so they could cross. Well, what happened after they crossed? Well, it started flowing again. Guess what? No going back. No going back. But what if they had thought, well, we can just wait for flood stage to, to go back down and we'll, we'll just kind of find a, a, a narrow spot. We'll wait across, we'll get back over there and we'll just settle on the east side of the Jordan with Reuben Gad and half Manasseh. What if they had just given up because of their defeat? And how many times in your life have you given up because of defeat? When you've sinned, when you failed, and by the way, most of our defeats are the result of sin. Uh, when they're not the result of sin, they're the result of faithlessness because our God is a God of victory and triumph, not a God of defeat. So when we are defeated in our lives or feel defeated or feel like we failed, it's, it's because we've sinned or we haven't trusted him. When you've sinned, when you failed, when you, like Israel before I, utterly have collapsed, how do you return to the fight? And that's Joshua chapter eight. How to return to, to the fight. I love this chapter, it is so encouraging because it's Joshua and the people of Israel back on their feet. Some don't return to the fight. In the church today, and I still think part of the reason we don't see the kind of moving in the American church today that that perhaps we've seen in previous times, a large part of that is that there are people who are not returning to the fight. They failed, so they check out. They sit on the sidelines, content to show up. Well, I'll be there, but I'm I'm not of any use to Jesus or to the church. Others shoulder a load of guilt that is so heavy, they bear it and they add to it, and every time they try to go into battle, they just have too much weight, so they're not able even to fight. What did God say to Joshua, I remind you of this back in chapter seven as Joshua with ash on his head and clothing torn and gather with the elders before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord as they are weeping and praying and the Lord says, rise up. See, that's what God says. While we're laying down, he says, rise up. He says, consecrate the people, so they do that. In chapter seven, there is a consecration, there is a cleansing, there's repentance, and, and there is a, a punishment that is meted out and, and the, all the people of Israel recognize the sin. But the question remains, even after all that, how do I rise up following repentance? Lord, I've repented, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, I've returned to you, now what? How do I return to the fight? especially with confidence, and I think that's what's often lacking. I'm gonna give you five things to jot down that'll take us through chapter eight, and we'll start right off with the first one. You begin with the encouragement of the Lord. How do I return to the fight? You begin with the encouragement of the Lord. This is where the lies get broken by the truth because God is not content for you to stay in that stuck place. You begin with the encouragement of the Lord, chapter eight, beginning in verse one. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. God is the great encourager. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. What's the difference between being afraid and dismayed? Well, afraid, you're fearful, you can't move. Dismayed, you're just bummed out. Either way, you're not going forward, and God says, let it go. Don't be dismayed. And he says this phrase, and he's already said it to Joshua before regarding Jericho. See, I have given it to you, which is God's way of saying this is a done deal. And in the victorious Christian life that we're looking at, overlaying across the book of Joshua, in the victorious Christian life, there is no wallowing in weakness. And if that's you tonight, pay attention. No swimming in sorrow, no reeling in regret. You see, the Lord anticipates, get this, our failures. He knows you're gonna fail. He knows when it's gonna happen. When it happens and you're shocked by your own failure, he's not shocked, he knew it was coming. He knew that they were going to be defeated by I the first time, because he knew what was going on, what was underneath the camp, and what was in the hearts of the leaders as they launched out without him. He knew that they were going to fail. The Lord knows this, but he encourages our success. And I tell you that not as an excuse to fail, but as inspiration to fight on. He knows you're gonna fail, but he also knows he's gonna call you back to the fight again. Stand up, rise up, and go forward. Do not be dismayed. Think about Peter. And here's the perfect example of Jesus knowing the failure ahead of time, calling it out. And even before Peter fails, Jesus is calling him to success. Luke chapter 22, verse 31, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Rise up, Peter. Consecrate yourselves. Do not be afraid or be dismayed. See, I have given it to you. It's about lessons learned and leadership realigned. And when the Lord leads out, when the Lord encourages, and he always does, it's time to reengage in the fight. Verse two you shall do to I and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves, set an ambush for the city behind it. Couple of things. First off, note this. If Akan had been patient, he would have had the plunder he so desired. Not at Jericho, that was God's. But the Lord fully intended to give Israel plunder at Ai and the following conquest, the following cities. They would have the plunder. And Akan could have had it. But he wanted it when he wanted it, not God's way. He had no vision. You could say he had no eyesight. I'm sorry, I, I, had, to, I had to go there. But here's something else that's interesting. Eyesight, Ai, eyesight. Okay, all right. Just make. I didn't want anybody to miss it. Don't want anybody to put their eye out here. Um, Okay, so think about it this way. God has a completely different strategy for this fight. And that's what's interesting here in verse two. We realize God's got a new battle plan. It is completely different from the previous debacle where they sent 3,000 men up there just to head right into Ai and they got routed. It's also completely different than Jericho. This is now going to be an ambush rather than a trumpeted assault. They assaulted Jericho with the shofars and with the shout and then charging right on up into the city and taking the city. This is completely different. They're not gonna do the battle of I this way. The command of God and the promise of God is unchanging. It's still take the promised land, but the strategy is now different. And this is why as followers of Jesus, we gotta be checking in. We need to be praying and asking the Lord for the next step because while the promises remain the same, the strategies are different. And we're about to head into now, not only tonight, but Sunday and and the next few weeks, head into a section of Joshua that's so fascinating because we will learn from this spiritual strategies for fighting the good fight that we've been called to fight. And we can make spiritual application of these strategies, but it's important to note the strategies change. The Lord is not gonna always have you fight the exact same way that you fought last time. It's not gonna be the same battle. It's not gonna be the same city. And we have to value sensitivity to the Holy Spirit because while Jesus doesn't change and his promises do not change, the strategies of warfare do. And it may be different tomorrow than it was yesterday. So let's watch him take out an eye. That's the last time. Verse three. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men, 10 times more than the last attempt, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. He commanded them saying, see, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. By the way, there's something in the divine right in here. He's gonna send 30,000 people up and around and behind Ai to the West to flood into the city. 30,000, don't you think someone would hear them? You got to assume the hand of God is at work here. The Bible doesn't even address that, but it just strikes me they would have been heard, but for God working his plan. So Joshua releases, sends off the 30,000 men to go up for an ambush. Then I, verse five, and all the people who are with me will approach the city. Guess what, it's not just 30,000. 30,000 are gonna go for the ambush. The entire rest of Israel are going to go toward the city. Keep that in mind. And when they come out to meet us, verse five continues, as at the first, we will flee from before them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first, so we will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. And again, completely different. The last time it was according to the word of Joshua and the elders and they were routed. This time, it's the word of the Lord. This is God's battle plan. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have, Joshua says, commanded you. Second thing, following the encouragement of the Lord in the return to the fight, is the engagement of the assembly. The engagement of the assembly. This time, again, the ambush is 10, just the ambush is 10 times greater Then the number of men who went up the last time, the 3,000, now it's 30,000 to ambush. And in verses one, three, and five, we note that he involves all the people of war in Israel. Every fighting man, all the people of war, that's everyone the age of 20 and up who is fit for battle. So you've got the 30,000 coming in ambush and then the entire rest of the Israelite army, the IDF forces, if you will, are now gonna approach from the front. This is a massive show of force. Listen, when you go back into warfare, when you go back into the fight, fight with all you've got. It doesn't matter how big or small the old sin issue may be or the challenge before you may be, you throw everything into it. That was the problem with the first attack of I in the first place is that they just kinda took a shot at it. I think about this especially with, with sin issues in our lives that we are overcoming by the power of the Lord or that we have been freed from by the power of the Lord and we think we can toy with them or we think it doesn't take much to get by them. Throw everything you've got at it. We are not called to a half-hearted following of Jesus but wholehearted faith in the work of the Holy Spirit to go all in on the fight of the Lord and, and, and I hope that you can, you can make application to the fight because the fight can be a huge generalization. The fight could be something as simple as struggling with alcoholism, which I'm not saying that's simple, but it can be something as obvious as that. It, it can be something as, as obvious as a, as a struggle with pornography. It can be a, a personal sin issue, something that you're not able to let go of, or it could be a big attack on a church fellowship. Whatever the fight is, go all in. If it's a moral stance that we are called to take, man, be firm and bold. As I've been talking about recently, the church in America today has two options. It's either gonna fall flat on its face or it's gonna stand up with the truth of the gospel and the word of God. I, for one, say we need to stand, and we need to stand firm and unbending to the waves and the winds of culture. If it's, if it's bringing the gospel, man, we need the full evangelical barrage. We need the entire assembly, which is why I'm saying, point two, this is the engagement of the assembly. When Peter and John came back from having faced the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and, and they had been told by this council of 71, probably a few had, had begged off by then, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea among them, But this large council of Jewish leaders, imposing and serious men, and they told Peter and John, no more speaking in the name of Jesus. They warned them against it. They'd already spent the night in prison because of it. No more speaking in the name of Jesus. And so Peter and John, they go back to their fellowship. And what happens? Everybody starts weeping and whining and thinking, oh no, it's over, we're not gonna be able to do this now. Well, if you know the story, you know that's not what happened. Acts chapter four, verse 23 says, when they had been released, they went to their companions and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them, that is all the negativity, all the challenge, all the warning against speaking in the name of Jesus. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. And they said, O oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devised futile things? The kings of earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants be protected from all their attacks and give us a hiding place and keep us safe. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not what it says. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. I love the reaction. Don't speak in this name anymore. Oh, Lord, give us confidence to speak in this name. The assembly is all in. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. No, it doesn't say that. They would at other times. But here it says, they began to speak the word of God with boldness, why? The church was all in, and we need that today. And I say that to you gather here, and I say that to you at home. I know there are some people at home who are sick right now. I always think of this, by the way, total side note, but I remember being a kid in church, and and the elder was praying for those who were sick of the church. No, So I hope you're not sick of the church, but if you're sick, we're praying for you. But at home or here, listen, we need the church all in. This is the engagement of the assembly. The entire confident church needs to be in on this attack. Oh, I don't know, I I just failed recently. Time to return to the fight. It is time to return to the fight. It's time to stop allowing old sins and old patterns and even old religion and old theology to keep you from engaging when the enemy is trying to to take us down and and trying to to quell any kind of, of enthusiasm that we might have for Jesus. It is time to return to the fight and to stand up here at the end of the age. And listen to me on this. If you think that you are irrelevant or unnecessary in this church fellowship or any other, you have been lied to. You have been lied to. That is not the truth. The entire assembly is necessary, every one of us. And it doesn't mean we're gonna fill every open staff position with everybody at the church. It means that we are all called to stand in the name of Jesus, and that may be with your next door neighbor. That may just be with a friend that you've never told the gospel to because you've been a little concerned about how they might take it. It means that we are all called to engage. Hebrews 10, 23, and I hear this all the time in my head these days. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know what? If we're not together, we can't stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You just can't do it not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, the assembly is being called to engage. And we see this as they now go up against I, the entire assembly is involved from the ambush up behind of 30,000 and the, the rest of the fighting men are coming up now with Joshua everybody's in, they're gonna fight this fight together. So verse nine, Joshua sent them away and they went to the place of ambush and remained between Betel and Ai or Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Now Joshua rose early in the morning. I point this out to you again, note how often Joshua rises early. There is a pattern with Joshua Not to sleep the morning away, but to get up early and be in the presence of the Lord. And it's the best way to start our days. Now in my 58th year, I wake up at 4 a.m. anyway, so it's not really mattering when I want to get up, I'm just gonna get up. But Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people. And he went up with the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. And then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. Verse 12 says, and he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bet-El and Ai on the west side of the city. Wait, didn't he just send 30,000? This says 5,000. Hold that thought. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city and its rear guard on the west side of the city. And Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. Now, some commentators have said, well, you know, this is one of those Bible discrepancies. It was an accident by the, the, the scribes who, who wrote this down, that in one place they wrote 30,000, and in the other place they wrote 5,000, and that was just a scribal error. I, I, I don't accept that. You know, I really think our God is capable of dealing with scribal errors. So what's going on here? The reality is we've got three contingents. Three contingents for this battle. The first contingent, 30,000 are going up to the west side. And then the second contingent, Joshua, with the rest of the fighting men are gonna come up to the north side of Ai. And they're going to approach the city from the front while those guys in the west are are in the rear for the ambush. But then he took about 5,000. And I'm thinking it's 5,000 of the 30,000 as another contingent. And they are gonna stand between I and beth el in case any other force tries to come and help, that they're a rear guard for the ambush, and they're even called that a, a rear guard. So you've got three contingents all stationed for this warfare, for this battle. And again, Joshua's got all the people fully engaged, prepared, and now positioned for victory. Watch it play out, verse 14. Came about when the king of eyes saw that the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle. He and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain, but he did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel. And they left the city unguarded and they pursued Israel, not knowing. I mean, this is almost comical. There's 30,000 on the west side just waiting for the city to clear out. And the city just cleared out. It's working perfectly. And so... The Lord then said to Joshua, verse 18, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin, or the spear, that was in his hand toward the city. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place, and when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, behold, the smoke of the city ascended into the sky, and they had no place to flee this way or that, for the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness, turned against the pursuers. Talk about a black eye. <laughs> See I said I wouldn't do it. I couldn't help myself. This is amazing. They turn around, their city behind them is on fire. They turn back around, and here's all of fleeing Israel turned around coming to attack. These guys are stuck. The others came out from the city to encounter them, verse 22, so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. Because Israel pretended to be beaten. That's one word. It's one word in the Hebrew, and it's, it's interesting. If you're into, into words and stuff, it's fascinating because the word is yinage'u, and it literally translates to be driven back or violently beaten down. But the word is in the imperfect form, which means incomplete action. And so that's why it's translated this way. It looks as if they're being driven back. You know, the translators chose to say Joshua and all the people pretended to be beaten down before them. That's not really, pretend, they didn't, weren't pretend. I mean, they, they looked as though, because they were running away, they looked as though they were being beaten but it was an incomplete action. They were not truly being beaten down. Now now, now keep that in mind because throughout history, the devil has been in the position of I. Throughout history, he has magnificently overplayed his hand to defeat. Over and over and over. Why, because the devil is driven by sin? And wickedness, he is blinded by pride and his own evil desire. So there is a strategy that the Lord has used continually throughout history, a strategy that the devil does not understand. Get this, the strategy is weakness. Weakness. 1 Corinthians 12:9. Paul said, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Let me ask a question. Did Paul in recognizing his weakness back down from the fight? Did Paul recognizing his own weakness back down from the fight, quit the mission, stop preaching the gospel? It's a pretty easy question. No he did not. Paul recognized his weakness and fought on because it was in Paul's weakness that God's strength was displayed. And that's what we see happening at I. Paul says, most gladly therefore I will rather boast about my weaknesses, 1 Corinthians 12, nine continues, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, for when I'm weak, I am then a victim. It's not what he says. When I'm weak, I'm strong. This is something we need to get into the whole mentality of the church. When we're weak, we're strong. That's when the strength of the Lord is is seen, is understood. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse eight, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. When you are weak, then you are strong. This is a strategy of the Lord. Listen, we always fight from what looks like a position of weakness, which then allows God's great power to be at work. His grace, his glory then shines. People look at us fighting from weakness and the praise and the glory goes to God because his strength is manifest. Let me give you some examples of this. The Jewish people looked beaten lost and ended in the Holocaust. That was it. And Satan, this is one of the great overplays of Satan's hand. Instead of Israel being completely annihilated from the planet, which was Hitler's final solution and Satan's great desire, the unexpected happened exactly as God had said it would. Isaiah 66, verse seven, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Now, that's a prophecy of Jesus. Before Israel's greatest distress in all their history happened, Jesus was born into the world from Israel. But then Isaiah 66:8 8 says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, that is, went through the intense pain, She also brought forth her sons. What's he talking about? As soon as the Holocaust happened, guess what happened? The nation was born. The land became a nation in a day. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord, shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God, and it's an absolute marvel and a wonder that rather than the Jewish people being destroyed, the nation of Israel now exists and there are more Jewish people on the planet today than there were before the Holocaust. God has completely restored the numbers. Well, that's what God does. His power, his glory, his greatness in their weakness. The devil didn't know it. He just saw weakness and went after it. But the Lord knew what he was doing. There's a greater example of the enemy's inability to comprehend this strategy of weakness. 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 13, verse four, and note this is a great verse. For indeed, Jesus was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we are also weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God toward you. Jesus sure appeared to be beaten down. Talk about looking weak, beaten and scourged, and couldn't even carry his cross all the way out to Golgotha and then nailed up on the cross in front of all the people as Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53, verse eight, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, and here's the turn, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Fantastic. In the moment of the greatest weakness in all history, as Jesus was the lamb slain, so the power of God was displayed and the victory was secured. And by the way, in the future, Israel will again appear beaten. They right now, though a a tiny postage stamp country in the Middle East, they are strong in the Middle East, powerful in the Middle East, nuclear capable in the Middle East. The Arab nations will poke at them, but do not want to go head to head in warfare. But the day is coming when Israel's gonna be viewed as extremely weak and conquerable, and it will be time to take them down and Zechariah 14 verse five says you will flee you will flee by the valley of my mountains just as they fled before I because they looked beaten you will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Atzel. yes you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him and you know who those holy ones are right Yeah, (laughs) it's me, it's the saints, it's you, it's me. First John chapter four, verse four, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. By the way, if you don't know what the Bible teaches about your return with him, talk to me about it. We gotta look at that, I don't have time tonight, but it is so exciting to know when Jesus returns, we are with him, his holy ones, his saints. By the way, did you note what Joshua is doing all through the battle? Did you catch what what it said that the Lord asked him to do and he began to do? He's holding up a javelin. Look at verse 23. They took the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. Now when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed. Then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. We have addressed this, my friends. We have addressed the Canaanite, the, 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 the ites of the land, and how absolutely depraved they were, and God's righteous judgment after 400 years of patience, so I'm not gonna deal with that either right now, but verse 26 says, for Joshua did not withdraw his hand which, with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. He held high the javelin, and apparently from the first mention all the way through verse 26, he did it through the whole battle. Joshua's hand is holding the javelin high. And he holds it up, first as a signal to those who are ambushing, because you know the first time it mentions the the javelin, it goes up and the men who are in ambush flood into the city. So they're waiting for a sign, that's the high sign. When Joshua raises the javelin, go, 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 and into the city they, they flood. They flood in against the people of Ai in the same way that Israel beat back the Amalekites in the Valley of Rephidim. And so that's the parallel here. Remember in the Valley of Rephidim, Moses held up his hands. Now at the Valley of Ai, God says, Joshua, hold up your spear. Hold up the javelin. Back in Exodus 17, verses 13 and 14, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. And now we see why. After the battle in the valley of Rephidim with Moses' hands held high, now in the battle of Ai, Joshua's prepared. This has been recited to him. Moses has read it to him. I don't know if he read it to him as a bedtime story at night, I'm not sure. But over and over, he would read this to Joshua and Joshua would hear it and this would formulate in his mind so that when the Lord says, time for this battle plan, hold up your spear, Joshua wouldn't even hesitate. Hold up my spear. Oh yeah, like Moses' hands. And up the spear goes and victory was theirs. God knew Joshua would need to be trained up in his faith for a future battle, faith for this battle, faith to fight against I. And the javelin here, the spear is once again, please note this, it is once again a picture of prayer. Of prayer. This is point number three I call this the energy of the spear. The energy of the spear. The engagement of the people was point two, the encouragement of the Lord, point number one, point number three, the energy of the spear. And I use that word uh, intentionally because James 5.16 says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Effective in the English is not not a strong enough translation of the Greek word there. The King James gets it closer. The King James reads, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The word translated effective or effectual fervent is energeo, energeo. It's where we get our word energy, the energetic prayer, the ardent prayer, the passionate prayer, the avid prayer. And yet how many minds wander in prayer? It happened in staff meeting. I'm not gonna say who. I'm not gonna say who. In fact, before I say this, I think I told you recently of a time that that Les and and Jake and I were sitting in my office and the three of us were praying together and Les prayed and then Jake was praying and and I I had already prayed and, and as Jake was praying and I was just so tired. It wasn't Jake, it was me. It's not you, it's me. And I'm sitting there and I nodded off. I mean, I don't know how long it was. Either you guys are super gracious and it was utter silence for half an hour and you're looking at each other going, should we wake him up? What do we do here? I totally nodded off until all of a sudden I, and I realized we're sitting in silence and I could feel Jake doing one of these. And I nodded, I was just so tired. It happened in staff meeting. A couple of weeks ago, again, I won't say who, but it was two people. Because since that event in my life, if I'm the slightest bit tired, I don't close my eyes when I pray or I'm gone. So I'm, I'm sitting there in staff meeting and I'm listening and, and Jake's praying. Again, it was Jake, I don't know what the deal is. I'm totally, man, I'm just messing with you. So I'm sitting there, but I'm, I'm looking up and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm really, I don't know if you were impacted by this, but when we were reading John 17, and it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes toward heaven and prayed, that really got to me. I thought, yeah, he's looking beyond this world in prayer. And so I've, I've kind of taken to doing that. So if you see my eyes open in prayer, it's because I'm focused, not because I'm, I'm you know looking at other stuff. So I'm looking around and I, I have my eyes up and I'm, I'm listening and Jake's praying on. And I'm like, yes, man, yeah, bro. And then I look across the room and, and I, again, I won't say who, but I see one person doing this. And I look around and I see a second person. (laughs) Have you done it? I mean, let's just be honest. Have you nodded off in prayer ever in your life? Do you know why we get sleepy in prayer? Let me just be really clear about this. It's because religion is boring. How many prayers have I heard? It's the monotone. La, 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 and I'm just going, I can't take this anymore. Liturgy is lethargy, man. It just kills me. Ritual. It just gets tiresome until the tedium saps our faith of its strength. That's part of the lie that has seeded its way into the denominational church of our world. And I think Shakespeare nailed it. I know I've quoted this to you before. It's one of my favorite Shakespeare quotes. It's out of Hamlet, where Hamlet is trying to pray, but he just can't pray. He's filled with vengeance and anger and and confusion, doesn't know what to do. And he prays, my words go up, my thoughts stay low, words without thoughts never to heaven go. I would slightly alter that. I would say words without heart never to heaven go. Man, if it's just the blah, 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 we gotta pray because now, our Father who art in heaven we need to pray until the guy says amen and then we'll do the next thing in the organization of the service and after a while it just all this rote and God is saying I want you to know me and I want you to know that I know you and that's exciting and that's relationship and that's why Jesus says when you're praying don't use meaningless repetition as the gentiles do Matthew chapter 6 verse 7 They suppose they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your prayer, my prayer, should more resemble a spear, a javelin held high. We are praying to the mighty God of the universe who wants to answer the prayers of his people, right? I mean, that should be exciting, We should say, hey, we're having a prayer night and the place is packed out because wow, something's gonna shake. Remember that last prayer when the whole room was shaken? I mean, that happened to the people when Peter and John came back, right? They're praying fervently, avidly, the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous people made righteous by the blood of Jesus and they prayed And and Jesus says, your father knows what you need. That's not the issue of prayer. He knows. He just wants you engaged. He wants your heart in. Put some energy into the prayer. You are talking to the God who created all things. Now, I know someone would say, well, if he knows what you need before you ask him, why ask at all? Because he desires your heart. He's asking for your heart. Here's another parable that Jesus told, and this is just fantastic. Luke 8. 18, um, verse nine, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. As he's praying, you know what I'm doing? The tax collector, Jesus says, standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. You know what that is? That is all heart, all heart, all in prayer. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Godward prayer is all heart. Godward prayer is genuine, it's authentic, it's real, it is never religious. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person, again, righteous because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, That kind of prayer takes hold of the promises of God. That kind of prayer, like Joshua with the javelin, believes God when he says, see, I have given it to you. I've given it to you. You have it. Imagine if Joshua didn't believe that. A half-hearted holding up of the spear. Okay, what if this doesn't work? Well, let's give it a shot. I mean, the guys in the ambush wouldn't even have seen it. Stick it out there with faith. Hold up your prayer with faith. I've given it to you. And Jesus said, his words not mine, Matthew 21, 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it'll happen. And all things you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. And I believe it would, and the reason why we don't see people throwing mountains into the sea It's because we miss the point. There is power here beyond anything we can imagine when we talk to God, when we hold up the javelin to our Father. There is power there. How many of us just kind of lean the spear forward, if at all, when we pray and so we're falling asleep? Think about how it looked. In the history of God's faithful ones, Hebrews 11:32, 32, time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And just wait till we hear their, those stories in Judges. It's crazy stuff of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. And I guarantee you, none of those guys were falling asleep on the battlefield. None of them were bored by the monotony of religion none of them were made lethargic by the liturgy the invocations the doxologies the benedictions and please don't get me wrong some of those are beautiful we have some of the hymns that we sing that are there's one that we sing the doxology praise god from whom all blessings flow oh it's it's a beautiful song of worship so I, i'm not denigrating those those liturgies that have so much heart in them, what I'm denigrating is the attitude that reads them with no change in the heart at all. How can we sing those things, say those things, and just be monotone and sleepy? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Hold the javelin high until the battle is won. Point number four. Let's talk about this just a little bit. The extent of the devastation. The extent of the devastation. Verse 27, Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder for themselves. That's exactly what God said they could have. So they obeyed. It's beautiful. According to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned I and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. So we're talking at least until the day of the writing of the book of Joshua. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening and at sunset Joshua gave the command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Ai, by the way, translates in the Hebrew, heap of ruins. Now, I don't know why anyone would name their city Heap of Ruins, and I'm not even sure here what the etymology is of the name. Was that name given after the Battle of Ai that it had a different name, but they ended up calling it Ai because it was a heap. It was a burned down heap of ruins buried under a pile of stones. By the way, it's interesting. Maybe another study for another time. Think of all the piles of stones throughout the book of Joshua memory stones, stones of covenant, stones of triumph, stones of absolute devastation. So even here at I, there's a massive pile of stones, a heap of ruins that would remind the children of Israel both of their triumph and of the enemy's rebellion, of their victory and of the absolute defeat of sin. And I will say this much about the extent of the devastation, you don't make peace with the enemy. You don't leave evil alive to fight the next day. And if we can draw that lesson out of this, you don't look at those things that you've conquered and think, well, it's okay, I'll just keep a little bit on the shelf. You wipe it out completely. Couple more things on the extent of this devastation. Think about this. Who were the inhabitants of I? Anyone have any idea? Who were the inhabitants of Ai? Who lived in this this city? Are they the Aiites? I mean, that'd be a weird name, right? Who are the inhabitants of Ai? If you look back at Joshua chapter seven, verse seven, note that Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? This was after Ai had routed Israel the first time. The people of Ai were Amorites. Now, when we got through chapter seven, I had to pause for a minute and go, wait, why is he saying the Amorites? Because they defeated the Amorite kings. Sihon and Og. Sihon and Og, we call them. But do you remember those two kings? They were kings of the Amorites that Moses and the people of Israel wiped them out before they settled on the plains of Moab, before they even came to the Jordan. They'd already destroyed the Amorite kings and their people, Right? Joshua chapter 5, verse 1 talks about all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan River to the west. So that's interesting. This is just like sin. There were Amorite tribes everywhere, dispersed in the city states throughout the land. Sin is dispersed just like that. It must be defeated in all regions of our lives, it must be taken out everywhere that it is encountered it wasn't good enough that it was just the, the two amorite kings on the eastern side of the jordan now within the land there are pockets of amorites still and the amorites must be dealt with the amorites must become a heap of ruins why because sin itself always ends up a heap of ruins you understand that that, that sin is always always results in a heap of ruins that's where it's going I love what John Corson said, and I always get this wrong. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. And we flip that around. Oh, you know, God is just making up, you know, a a set of rules that He just decides what's good and bad, and that's, and we just gotta, what, just gotta follow that? No, no. He knows what's bad. He knows what's evil. And because it's evil, He says, don't do it. Because sin will always result. Without fail, in a heap of ruins, a heap of ruins. Note that Genesis fifteen and sixteen, the Lord said to Abraham four hundred years earlier, in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So the Amorites, they were the poster children of sin in the land, and they needed to be taken out. Sin needs to be taken out. The wages of sin is death. That's the deal. We need to teach this to our kids, our grandkids. We need to be reminded of, our, of this ourselves. Sin is not something to toy with. The wages of sin is death. Death is in the world because of sin. That's the end game of the devil. That is the end game of sin. It always becomes a heap of ruins. And by the way, that's what the future holds for the enemy himself. The purveyor of sin. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's where he's gonna end up. Not as king of hell, but as one burned in hell. The inhabitants of Ai, the Amorites. Second thing to note about the extent of this devastation And this is interesting to me that Joshua is not the only one in the book of Joshua who prefigures Jesus. It might surprise you to find here that the king of I prefigures Jesus too. What do you mean? Deuteronomy 21 verse 22 says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged, is accursed of God. That's why they hung the king of Ai. He's accursed of God. But he shall not, you shall bury him the same day, God says, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance. The king of Ai is the first one to whom this law applied. So now they're in the land. A man is hung on a tree as a curse. And Joshua says, take him down. You know, at the end of the day, we gotta take this guy down so that the land doesn't bear that curse. And the king of I is the first one to whom it applies. 1,500 years later, Paul applies it to Jesus. Galatians three thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, If it bothers you at all that the king of I would prefigure Jesus, maybe you would say, well, I and the king of I are sin. They're a picture of sin. How could they portray Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin to take the wrath of God and all the punishment for sin and the very death of sin itself on himself. The only difference here is that while they raised a great heap of stones over the king of I that stands to this day, the stone that sealed the tomb of Jesus was rolled away. And Romans 6.23 reminds us, yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing picture that we have before us. Well, Israel has now punched its way into the land. We're coming down to the end of tonight's study, but there's one more thing you gotta see here that's pretty cool. Israel's come into the land by the power of the Lord. They blew their way through Jericho, right, with the shofars. They ambushed Ai, now And the next move should be to completely break Bet-El. It's the next city right there. And and on this pattern, if you follow it militarily, it's very smart that they're cutting across west west before they start to head up north. They're cutting the land in half before they fight to the north. And so they should be going next against Bet-El, but they don't. They do something really weird, really strange here. Joshua, both spirit-filled and spirit-led, does something that is vital to their rite of passage. He bypasses beth El, and he takes Israel on a 30-mile trek to the north. 30 miles up north, all of the people of Israel, by the way, not just the fighting men, everybody breaks camp and off they go, 30 miles to a certain valley. Point number five, our last point tonight, the edict between the mountains. The edict between the mountains. Picking up where we left off in verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at first or had given command at first to bless the people of Israel, and then afterward he, that is Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Do you remember that command? Deuteronomy chapter 27. Moses said to to the people, to the elders of Israel and all the people, he charged them, saying, so it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be, when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up stones on Mount Ebal. These stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord God an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. Simple, plain, You shall build an altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones and shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God and shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly, he says. And that is exactly what they're doing here. And it's so interesting because in a military operation like this, they've got the momentum. Keep going, take out Beth El, go take out Shechem, keep going north, one city after another. Man, march through, let's let's do this thing. But after taking out I, Joshua, led by the Lord, says, oh, something we gotta do, and they head north. And again, that 30 mile trek, and what's interesting here is think about this, in the middle of all this, He takes a break from it and goes to the north and Joshua, hand-chiseled Torah law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he hand-chisels Torah on these uncut stones. How long would that take? For anyone who's ever looked at their watch in the midst of a Bible study, how long would it take to chisel the first five books of the Bible on these stones. And we don't have time for church? How long has the people camped and waited and Joshua's out there? And they're all just waiting for Joshua? What's amazing here is Joshua obeyed the literal word of God. He didn't allegorize it. Well, what Moses intended was. You know, the idea behind this, generally speaking, metamorph- you know, metamorphically speaking here, uh, allegorically speaking, um, metaphorically speaking. No, he did exactly what he was told to do. Chisel the law on the stones. That's what it says. That's what it means. We've gotten too far away from that in the church. Too far away from the little, literal word of God. What does the word say? That's where we start. And that's what he did right in the middle again of this military campaign. Why would he do such a thing? By faith. By faith because this is what the Lord called for. Now, something you got to know about this situation is to make matters more difficult. The entrance to this valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the entrance was guarded by a huge fortified city. You can just walk into this valley, There's only one way in, and the city was in the way. The city's still there, by the way. It's called Shechem. Shechem is there at the base of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. I I actually got to go up on Mount Gerizim one time, kind of before an Israel tour. Our our guide was a little crazy and took us into Area C in in the Palestinian territories. Shechem is Ramallah. It is the terror hotbed of the Palestinian territories. It's the, one of the most violent places in the Middle East. And, and we got, like, within about 100 yards of the entrance to Ramallah, big red sign, no Jews enter here. You know, and our Jewish tour guide was just driving, blah, 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 And I'm like, what are you doing? And we go left, and then we took the road up Mount Gerizim. But from the top of Gerizim, we could look across at Mount Ebal, and we could look down, and there was, is Shechem. Shechem was there when Joshua and the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, came to go into this valley by faith to, to do this. So, so I, I, realizing that, it's like, wait a minute, though. How, how did, because the Bible doesn't say that they fought Shechem. The Bible doesn't say they had war and conquered them and utterly destroyed them and then went into the valley to offer their sacrifices and, and keep the blessings and the curses. So what's going on here? How did they get in? How does this massive company of Israel get past this fortified city? And here's the answer. In the late 1880s AD, 382 clay tablets that dated back to, interestingly, the 14th century BC, dating back to Joshua, 382 clay tablets were discovered in a place called Tel Armana, which is Upper Egypt. They're called the Armana letters. You can look this up, you can Google it if you'd like. The Armana letters, and they are written in clay most of them are written uh, in, in the script of, of the day. Um, the, what do they call that script? I forget. But anyway, written in, in, the, in the language, the Mesopotamian language of the Middle East of the time. And they were letters back and forth from city kings living in Canaan's land and the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. And we have 382 of these remain because they're written on clay tablets. 197 of them were actual correspondence between Pharaoh and the kings of of Canaan. And among these letters, the king of Jerusalem, a guy by the name of Adonai Zedek, you're gonna meet him in Joshua chapter 10. The king of Jerusalem writes to Pharaoh about an invasion force that has entered the land and he describes the surrender of the city-state of Shechem to a people called the Haberu, Haberu, Hebrew, the Hebrew people. Shechem gave up without a fight. Israel marched north to do their faithful work in the valley of the blessings and curses, and Shechem said, we give, and there was no, not a shot fired. They gave in, they gave up, and we have this historically verified that that's exactly what happened, and it's very interesting, because when we get to Joshua 10, you'll see this. Verses three and four of Joshua 10 tells us Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent out letters for help to other regional kings, which would include the Pharaoh. "Help us. The Habiru have come into the land, the Hebrews. But why would Shechem do it? I mean, so we have the historical evidence that that Shechem surrendered. We have Joshua and the children of Israel going into the valley right by Shechem, so Shechem had to surrender. So the the Bible and and history and archeology span all line up, but still, why would Shechem surrender to the Habiru? Let me give you something else on this. Joshua is an Ephraimite, okay? His, His forefather was Ephraim. Do you remember where Ephraim was born? Anyone? Ephraim and Manasseh are the sons of Joseph, so they were born in Egypt. So Ephraim's born in Egypt, and then Judah and, or or, um, Jacob and and all of his other sons came down to Egypt. This is prior to the enslavement in Egypt. They came down to Egypt, but Joseph was already there. Ephraim and Manasseh were born there. Ephraim is Joshua's uh, forefather. Ephraim had a daughter, the Bible tells us, and her name is Shira. I call her Shira the architect. This famous daughter is named in the lineage of of Ephraim, leading right down to Joshua himself in 1 Chronicles chapter seven. Listen to this, 1 Chronicles 7.24 says, Ephraim's daughter was Shira, who built lower and upper Bet-Horon and Utzin shira now, that's very strange that it, this is this, obviously a very strong, uh, well-trained woman at the time built two cities. She built upper and lower Bethoron, and she built what was called uh, Shira. These locations are both in the land, in fact, just south of Shechem. Now, stay with me, because what's interesting about all this is that Ephraim, has the daughter Shira, who obviously is a builder and an architect who built these cities back up in Canaan. She was born in Egypt, but she built in Canaan. What does that tell us? It tells us that there were Hebrews living in the land when Joshua and the children of Israel came into the land. There was already a Jewish presence in the land, and Shira is just, would have been one of many who came up to build those those cities, bet Horon, upper and lower, and Uts and Shera. Joshua may not have known this, probably couldn't have known this. This is 400 years have gone by since Shera left Egypt and built in Canaan's land. But now after 400 years, the people of Israel, Joshua come around, cross the Jordan, they come up, they, they beat Jericho, they beat I, they go up and they, they come across the entire area of Shechem and Shechem says, we give. Why? Maybe because they were relatives. Maybe because there were people right there who as the Habiru came in said, these are our people, let them pass. How could Joshua have known that? He didn't, but the Lord knew. And the Lord led Joshua and the children of Israel all the way up. The Lord commanded you go, to the valley between Ebal and Gerizim, and you offer sacrifices there, why would God tell them to go there? It's not even Jerusalem, it's not Shiloh, it's not holy places in the future of Israel. It's an interesting location to do that. Why would they go there? Perhaps because the Lord knew passage would be secure, that they could safely go and offer the sacrifices before continuing in their military campaign. Verse 35, by the way, God always knows ahead of time what's coming. We're surprised, we're shocked almost every day. He never is. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. And Paul said it, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Joshua didn't skip a word. He hand-chiseled the entire law and then he read the whole thing in the hearing of all the people before they offered the sacrifices and called for the blessings and the curses between the two mountains. Joshua didn't skip anything. Jesus said, John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And that, my friends, is how we get back into the fight. Father, I just pray that you will mobilize your people, that you will engage all of your people, Lord, that we will hear your encouraging word. Lord, someone tonight just needs to hear you say, see, I've given it to you. See, you have this. Someone needs to hear your voice, Lord. Say, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Lord, your word is so potent and so powerful. And when we, by your Holy Spirit, receive your word and move in the direction of your spirit, we are made adequate for the fight. Thank you, Lord. Help us to embrace the calling we all yet have on our lives, to stand and be counted as those who name Jesus Christ as Lord, who live by and walk by your spirit and who claim your holy word as the word of truth. Help us not to miss a single word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.